You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Good to be back with you guys this morning. Uh, So today is Pentecost Sunday. And for some, that may mean a number of things. For some are like, it's Pentecost every Sunday. And for others, maybe with a more liturgical background, you understand what's being said here. But Pentecost Sunday is the day on on the church calendar where believers around the world celebrate the sending of the Holy Spirit to the church, the day that God's people became the Spirit-filled church. Now, Pentecost is both a historic event that was, that's recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, but in a sense, it's also an ongoing reality. Just as Jesus and his resurrection sent an irreversible tide through human history, so it is with the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost. The Spirit was poured out, and yet God continues to pour out His Spirit. Pentecost is, in a sense, the ongoing reality of God's presence with us even today. And this pattern of continuation isn't just necessarily biblical or historical, but it's also, and where I really want to land this plane today, is it's also personal. It means something for us as well. When we come to believe in Jesus, the Bible tells us of this beautiful process of regeneration where the Spirit of God animates our lives, it awakens our hearts to receive and believe upon Christ, and at conversion, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And yet, the Apostle Paul goes on later in Ephesians in chapter 5, and he says this, be filled with the Spirit. Now, he's speaking to the Christian church who has received the Spirit, and yet he says, be filled with the Spirit. And the the meaning here is really this ongoing process of being filled with the Spirit. And so there's this paradox that we live kind of in the middle of, that we have received the Holy Spirit, and yet we actively seek to be filled afresh and anew with the Spirit. Let me illustrate this. I have Michelle as my wife. We're married. She is mine, I am hers, but I also seek to have more of her. I I, I seek to experience her heart. I seek to experience her love. I seek to experience her thoughts and her goals and her joys. I shouldn't just assume upon her presence. 
In fact, anyone that's been in a relationship long enough knows that that's when things go bad. When you just sort of assume upon someone's person, well, yeah, I have a Michelle and she has me. But I seek to engage her. I seek to engage her presence. Now, I think that this is where we, we, we sort of trip up when it comes to talking about the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible describes the Holy Spirit not as a thing, not as an it. Let's stop referring to the Holy Spirit as an it. Or an impersonal force, like the force in Star Wars, just sort of that kind of binds things together. But the Bible describes the Holy Spirit as a person. For instance, a person that can experience grief, that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. When we talk about the Trinity, we talk about the third person of the Trinity. And so in the same way that we seek to know someone better, today what I want to ask us to do is to endeavor to know the Holy Spirit more intimately, to know the Holy Spirit better. All right? You guys were real quiet today. What a, what a day you guys chose to be quiet on Pentecost Sunday. You're already showing what you feel about that right now. Holy Spirit. Okay, there's grace for that though. So what we're doing is we're looking at a letter written to the church in Ephesus from the Apostle Paul from the first century. Now, we as a church, we've actually walked through the entire letter of Ephesians. So what we're going to do is we're going to circle back and we're going to look at this passage this morning. There's more to be mentioned here, but bare minimum, what we want to do is we want to note some things that the Apostle Paul is communicating about the life and ministry and work of the Holy Spirit within the church. And we're just going to jump right into it. So the first thing, if you're taking notes, is this, that the Holy Spirit establishes God's dwelling within us. The Holy Spirit establishes God's dwelling within us. Look with me in verses 16 through 17. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his what? Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So Paul is describing the work of the Spirit to prepare and ultimately to usher in the presence of Christ within us. Now here's, this is maybe a point where we have a problem. Because I think for a lot of us, we have sort of domesticated this idea of the dwelling place of Christ within us. I think the idea in our mind, or at least for a lot of us, is likely that of Jesus coming with his sort of like cosmic suitcase to come and crash on the couch of our hearts. Like Jesus is just coming to move into the house of our hearts. But the idea here that, that Paul's trying to get across, this idea of the inner being and the dwelling place of Christ is less about a home and more about a temple. Less about Jesus making necessarily his home in the sort of the domesticated way that we think about it and more about a temple. It's not about kindly inviting Jesus into our hearts as a house guest. I, I, I highly doubt that that's what Jesus is interested in to be a house guest in our hearts. It's really about the crown and the kingdom of Jesus breaking into our lives through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and Jesus ruling and reigning from the throne of our hearts. Less domestic, think less domestic, more temple, more ruling and reigning and throne here. In fact, earlier in Ephesians, the church is described like this. 
Chapter two, the whole structure being joined together grows into a what? Holy temple. I'm going to keep calling on you guys. In the Lord. So this sets the context. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place. There's that word again. For God by the Spirit. So he's setting it in the context of temple worship. And within this context, we see the work of the Spirit is to establish the throne room of heaven within us. To bring that throne room reality of heaven into our inner beings. In fact, that that idea of the inner being sort of alludes to the innermost place of the temple. We've talked about this at times in the past, that there were sort of concentric circles of the temple, the courts and the inner courts, and then ultimately the innermost place where the presence of God dwelt, where only the high priest could go once a year. The innermost place, the inner being, the holy of holies. The apostle Paul is talking about the most the innermost sanctuary of our hearts being the place where the powerful presence of God now chooses to reside, where he's ruling and reigning in our lives. Now, I can imagine by all the sort of blank stares I'm getting this morning that this seems very abstract, doesn't it? Can we admit that's sort of an abstract idea? It seems in in a lot of ways very theoretical. So that that we can envision what the Holy Spirit is bringing about in our inner beings, let's, let's look at the vision that Isaiah has of the throne room of heaven. It's recorded in Isaiah 6. Isaiah in the Old Testament says, The year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, these angelic hosts. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With uh, with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Now think about this, okay? What we just read about, the Holy Spirit is establishing that scene within us. Now, as you read through Acts 2, we see some similarities between Acts 2 and Isaiah's vision. These tongues of fire, uh, you know, later on in Acts, the, the, the place shook, the... the There's these these connections in the imagery between what we see on Pentecost and ultimately in this vision of Isaiah. But what I find interesting is that Ephesians takes it a step further. Because Paul is telling us that God not only sends this glorious heavenly reality that we read of of here in Isaiah. He doesn't just send this reality into upper rooms. But what the apostle Paul is saying is he takes this heavenly reality, this glorious holy reality and sends it into inner beings, into our hearts. And as he fills our inner beings, the control center of our lives, that work, the the rule and reign begins to permeate the rest of our lives. He causes our lives to be these living and breathing and moving temples that now go and fill the earth with the glory of God. So that we, as God has designed us, can be these movable, mobile tabernacles that are moving about throughout the world as God is bringing his glory about in our midst through his people. This is big. 
and requires nothing less than the ministry of the Holy Spirit. How are you doing on that, doing that, that sort of thing on your own? You're like, I barely got out of bed and made it to church today, let alone bringing the glory of God into the world. This is why we need the Spirit. Paul prays in, in verse 19 that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So what we need to remember is that the Spirit is after nothing less than filling us with the fullness of God. Expanding our capacity for his fullness. Expanding our capacity for the dwelling place of Christ. This is what God, through the Spirit, is bringing about in us. Now the second thing, if you're taking notes, is this. That the Holy Spirit enables us to grasp the limitless dimensions of God's love. How are you guys doing this morning so far? Okay. I know we're covering a lot of ground. Secondly, the Holy Spirit enables us to grasp the limitless dimensions of God's love. Now, in verse 18, Paul prays that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of Christ's love, this sort of four-dimensional love. A love that in its breath is able to encompass all of mankind. A love that in its length stretches into eternity. A love that in its height reaches into the heavens. A love that in its depth reaches down into our depravity, into our sin, and ultimately into our death. So we in the early church talked about this sort of four-dimensional love that we're talking about today. They saw it as an image of the cross, the four points of the cross. That, that the cross, which... Uh, encompasses, is able to encompass all of, of mankind, the, the cross which stretches into eternity, which rescues into eternity, the cross which seats us with God in the heavenly places, the cross which reaches down into the depths of our sin. This is an infinite, limitless love of God displayed through Christ. And what Paul prays is that the Holy Spirit would strengthen us to comprehend this love. But here's another problem. How do we wrap our minds around a love so infinite? See, the theologians of old, they had a motto when it came to uh, approaching study of God's word. The, the motto was this, that the finite cannot grasp the infinite. You and I are finite beings, and therefore we can't just simply grasp the infinite. Novation put it this way. At the contemplation and utterance of his majesty, all eloquence is rightly dumb. All mental effort is feeble, for God is greater than mind itself. His greatness cannot be conceived. If, if we could conceive of his greatness, he would be less than the human mind. He's greater than language, and no statement can express him. In all our thoughts about him, all our thoughts about him will be less than he, and our loftiest utterances will be Trivialities in comparison to him. Our greatest eloquence could never match the greatness of God. And in comparison to the greatness of God, our best speech is just dumb. Ephesians reminds us that who God is and how God loves us is just simply abundantly more than anything you could ever imagine. Try to think of your greatest thought of God and just realize that it will always come up short. You'll never be able to wrangle God in your mind. You'll never be able to, to fully fathom God. And yet, 
I find this interesting. The apostle Paul prays that we may be strengthened to comprehend it. We can't, but he's praying that we should. What the apostle Paul is essentially doing is he's describing the impossible. And so the question for us is how do we grasp such vastness? Here's the point. We don't. But the Holy Spirit now connects us and enables the finite us to engage the infinite of God. The Holy Spirit takes what is eternal, what is, what is great, what, what can feel so abstract and so distant and so theoretical for us at times, and he makes it real to us. Paul describes that the work of the Holy Spirit to root us and to ground us in that infinite, limitless love of Christ so that the roots of our lives go deep into Christ. He plants us in that love. He places us in that love. Now remember that the Holy Spirit ministers the, the personal presence of God. The personal presence of God. Which means that the love of God isn't something to simply wrap our minds around. It, it's someone to wrap our arms around. In fact, according to commentators, this word here, comprehend, is probably better translated apprehend. The word means to, to wrestle, to, to fight with, to, to lay hold of. Imagine Jacob wrestling in the middle of the night with the angel of the Lord, to lay hold of and say, I'm not letting go. Not just comprehend, but apprehend. The love being described here is not a concept. It's not a thing. Love is a person to hold. The Bible describes that God is love. Love took on flesh and blood and dwelled among us. Love lived and died and rose and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Don't think of love as this just sort of abstract, sentimental feeling. The love of God has been displayed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit is now enabling us to just lay hold and to cling to this Christ. We're enabled to not just think right thoughts about Jesus but to lay hold of Jesus by faith and truly experience him. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration that is very sort of crude, but I think it gets the, the point across. Mark Twain once said this, a man who carries a cat by the tail learns something he can learn in no other way. Okay, it's one thing to know I probably should not pull on a cat's tail. It is another thing to experience that firsthand. The Spirit strengthens our minds, our hearts, our bodies to cling to Christ, to explore his vastness, to be caught up and to be planted in his sacrificial love that surpasses all understanding. An 18th century uh, theologian named Jonathan Edwards uh, described and illustrated this idea by saying that there's basically two kinds of knowledge, two kinds of knowledge. There's a notion, which is sort of a basic mental understanding of how something works conceptually. And then there's an experiential knowledge. There's knowing, and then there's knowing. And he says there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy, having an opinion that God is gracious, having an opinion that God is good. There's a difference between that and having a sense of his loveliness having a sense of his grace, having a sense of his goodness and his holiness. 
And he illustrates it like this. He says, someone can have a rational understanding that honey is sweet and still not know the sweetness that comes from tasting honey. We can know with our minds the love of Christ and yet fail to experience. Listen to how the psalmist describes relationship with God. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see, savor the goodness and the grace of Christ. Christianity isn't simply thinking right thoughts. The psalmist is showing us that relationship with God through Christ is about savoring the goodness of God, and the Spirit enables us to savor the goodness of God through Jesus Christ. You can have a knowledge of the love of Christ and not know Jesus Christ. I really want you to listen right now. Because I think our churches are filled with people that have a knowledge of the love of Christ and yet do not know the love of Christ. There's theoretical Christianity that is lifeless and it is powerless and it is boring and it's burdensome. Maybe it's the kind of Christianity that you've just been experiencing up until now. And then there's the kind that Paul is describing here that is anything but lifeless and powerless and boring and burdensome. Lady Julian of Norwich, about 600 years ago, described the Christian life as this journey into the infinite. So the question for us today is, does that describe your faith? An ongoing, daring energetic experience and journey into the limitless love of Jesus Christ. Why do we need the Holy Spirit? To move us beyond the, th- the realm of theoretical, where, where I think a lot of us in the 21st century, we love to hover in that realm of theoretical. We need the Holy Spirit to move us beyond the realm of theoretical to cause us to lay hold of Christ. Some of us have settled to know Christ without knowing Christ. Some of us have settled for comprehending without apprehending. We too need to pray to be strengthened by the Spirit to lay hold of Christ as Christ has laid hold of us. The Spirit of God establishing the dwelling place within us, enabling us to grasp the limitless dimensions of God's love. But third and finally, The Holy Spirit empowers us with God's might. The Holy Spirit empowers us with God's might. Look with me in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work, where? Within us. Over the last decade, when I ask people how they're doing, the most common response that I typically get is busy. How are you doing? Oh, busy. It's sort of, uh, it's said with like a little bit of pride. What what I think busy became was sort of a a badge of honor, especially in a time of and coming out of national recession, because no one wanted to say, I've been doing a lot of nothing lately. Sort of that post-industrial revolution mindset kicked in. That we, that we attach our value and our worth to our productivity. That we, like machinery, if we're not producing, we're not 
worthy and were therefore discarded. So people felt that there was this need to, to constantly busy themselves. The Western world has really been on an anxious journey marked by busyness. But it's interesting because over the last maybe year or two, the answer to that question has shifted. It's gone from busy to tired. It's gone from busy with the sense of sort of like hopefulness to, to, to this just like sort of worn out, given up sigh of like tired. It doesn't matter if it's morning. You guys come in here real tired Sunday mornings. It doesn't matter if it's evening. It doesn't matter if it's the weekend. It doesn't matter if it's the weekday. It doesn't matter if you're young or old or man or woman or professional or student. People are exhausted. What, what, what unites the Western world? I would say today it is fatigue. But what's disheartening about this is it doesn't seem to be much different between the church and the world around it. Christians seem to be just as weary as their unbelieving neighbors. The watching world sees all the secular systems of this world that work people and wear them down to nothing. And then they look inside the church and they essentially see the same thing. Exhausted, worn out Christianity. And it makes me wonder why. And I don't have a really complete answer to this, but perhaps, perhaps it's because we display a faith that rests in what we do for God a faith that rests in what we do for humanity rather than a faith that rests in what God does for us. And listen, what God is continuing to do through us. I think that we grasp that we needed God completely to save ourselves. I think we fail to grasp that we, got, we need completely need God to continue the Christian journey. We get it when it comes to salvation. We don't get it when it comes to sanctification. So what ends up happening? We, we, we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We try as hard as we can and we give it all we got. No wonder why we're exhausted. Spiritual fatigue follows self-sufficiency every time. We're tired Christians because we have taken up the mantle of carrying ourselves through the Christian journey. But God has not called us into an exhausting Christianity. The Christian life, and I hope they warned you about this, the Christian life is going to be marked with persecution and rejection and suffering, and they may even kill you for the faith. But exhaustion is not the mark of a Christian. Exhaustion is the mark of sin and slavery, of bondage, of the yoke of bondage. And Christianity really is nothing, absolutely nothing. What an absolute waste of our time if it is just another exhausting alternative in this world. If Christianity is just a series of you just being exhausted for eternity, please do something better with your life. What a horrible ho hobby and habit. Jesus came to rescue us from the exhausting existence of that ceaseless motion of always trying and earning and striving. Listen to how Jesus describes his work and ministry and why he came. He said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you what? Rest. 
Man, I think that's a word for us today. You worn out? You tired? Jesus says, come to me. I will give you rest. That's a promise. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what again? Rest for your souls. God, we are looking for that. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If that is not our experience, we are doing it wrong. Something's gone wrong. If that's not our experience as a church, we have gotten off track. Something has gone awry. Because this is the life that Jesus called us into. This is why Christ came to earth, died in our place, and raised on the third day. To give us his rest. Not a life of fatigue, but a life of faith. This is the life that God has offered to us through the sending of his Holy Spirit and is now actively at work to bring about in us. Here in Ephesians, Paul prays to God that the church would be strengthened in their inner being and that his power would be at work through the Holy Spirit, that we would live and we would walk and we would breathe and we would worship and we would work and we would interact with one another. We would just simply exist according to the power of God at work within us. Not out of, out of a matter of self-sufficiency, but God-sufficiency. Connected to his limitless strength and energy and power. Andrew Wilson put it this way. Life in the flesh is like rowing. Life in the spirit is like sailing. Imagine your life as a boat. And I think for a lot of us, we have it in our minds that we, we see ourselves in this sort of rowboat. Where God has given us the trajectory, he's given us the, you know, the, the directions of where to go and, and how to get there. But now, it's our responsibility to keep rowing. It's our responsibility to get there. Sure, you know, he sends the sun to die in our place and to forgive us when we get off track. And every once in a while, he'll give us a little boost of energy by the Holy Spirit so that we can keep on rowing. But the Bible shows us that the Lord doesn't just speak the directions. Listen to me. He breathes the wind of the Spirit. Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, I don't know a lot about boats, but what I do know is this, that when the wind blows, you don't reach for the oars. When the wind blows, you raise the sail. And Pentecost means that the wind of the Spirit has blown upon us, our lives, our church, our world. Rowing is the movement that depends on our constant motion. If you stop, it all stops. Sailing is the motion that lifts our sails in faith and is moved along by the power of the wind, by the breath of God, by the Spirit of God. Some of us are rowing when the wind is blowing. And today is the day to lift the sails of faith and rest in him. Let me conclude 
This is God's vision. What we've, we've looked at here is God's vision for his spirit-filled church, and this is God's vision for his spirit-filled people. This is God's vision for your life. Everything that we've read of here in Ephesians, it may seem very lofty, it may seem grand, it may seem majestic, but God desires this for our lives. God desires this for our church. So how do we lay hold? How do we access this? Paul sets the example. See, this isn't just Paul instructing. This is Paul praying. He's on his knees. He's bowing before the Lord. And he's literally praying these realities into the church. We pray. J.C. Ryle once said this, Pray daily for a great outpouring of the Spirit on the church and on the world. This is the grand need of the day. It's the thing that we need more, far more than, than money, machinery, and men. We need more of the presence of the Holy Spirit, more in the pulpit, amen, more in the congregation, more in the pastoral visit, and more in the school. Where he is, there will be life and health and growth and fruitfulness. And where he is not, all will be dead and tame and formal and sleepy and cold. Pack up and go home. And let everyone who desires to see an increase of pure and undefiled religion pray daily for more of the presence of the Holy Spirit in every branch of the visible church. How do we experience what God is describing here through his word? Through prayer. And we pray and we ask and we seek and we knock. And we say like Jacob, I am not letting go until you bless me. God, I am not going anywhere until you pour out your spirit upon our church, until we are energized with the power of heaven so that we're no longer rowing, so that we're sailing. I look back at my Christian life and I could say there are long, long seasons of rowing. God is just joyfully extending to us the invitation. Hey, lift the sails and sail. And when we pray, here's what we need to keep in mind. We need to keep verses 21 and, 20 and 21 in mind. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him who is able. Who do we pray to? To him who is able. You cannot ask for more than God is capable of giving. Settle that now. There's nothing too big for God. We cannot overestimate God's desire to grace us with his spirit. We, we are incapable of exaggerating God's ability. We are incapable of exaggerating God's grace. And in his grace, God has chosen to bring this abundance into our lives and into our community. Are we willing to receive it? Are we willing to lay hold? Now, there's a word for us here as a church. A.W. Tozer once said this. God is looking for people through whom he can do the impossible. What a pity 
that we plan only the things that we can do by ourselves. That exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever imagine, God desires to do it in our midst. What a stinking pity that we have just simply assessed our own resources and our own manpower and determined our future based on what we've got. The church of Christ does not give it all they've got. The church of Christ gives it all that God's got. According to his abundance, my prayer is that we would position our lives and that we would position our church to stop assessing what we can do and what we can pull off and raise that sail of faith and allow the spirit of the wind to blow through our lives and through our church and to lead us into the realm of the impossible, to, to journey into the infinite that God has called us into. Amen? Amen. Amen.